This is Space Time, Series 23, Episode 112, for broadcast on the 23rd of October, 2020. Coming up on Space Time, the nearby supernova that exploded just two and a half million years ago, a successful 13th test flight for New Shepard, and a new highly classified satellite ground station begins operations in Western Australia. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Scientists have found telltale chemical signatures of a massive star between 11 and 25 times the size of our sun going supernova just two and a half million years ago in our local stellar neighbourhood. When the brightness of the star Betelgeuse suddenly dropped dramatically a few months ago, speculation grew that this red supergiant star was about to go supernova, an explosion powerful enough to cause damage to the Earth. While Betelgeuse has returned to normal, physicists have found evidence of a supernova that did explode near Earth about 2.5 million years ago. The life of stars with a mass more than 10 times that of our Sun ends in a supernova event, a colossal stellar explosion, bright enough to briefly outshine an entire galaxy. These explosions produce iron, manganese and other heavy elements, which are then blasted into the surrounding interstellar space. Any supernovae occurring near our solar system would leave these chemical signatures behind. And that's exactly what a team of scientists from the Technical University of Munich have found out. A report in the journal Physical Review Letters claims physicists studying layers of manganese crust dated to around 2.5 million years ago have confirmed the existence of both iron-60 and increased concentrations of manganese-53. The study's lead author, Gunter Korshink, says it's the smoking gun ultimate proof of a nearby supernova event taking place. Typically, manganese occurs on Earth as manganese-55. The isotope manganese-53, on the other hand, usually stems from cosmic dust like that found in the asteroid belt of our solar system. This dust is raining down on Earth continuously. New sedimentary layers, which accumulate year by year on the seafloor, preserve the distribution of the elements in manganese crusts and sedimentary samples. Using accelerator mass spectrometry, the authors detected both iron-60 and increased levels of manganese-53 in layers that were deposited about 2.5 million years ago. Cushing says the levels are only trace amounts, barely a few atoms. But accelerator mass spectrometry is so sensitive, it allows scientists to clearly identify increased rates. And the authors can then use those higher levels, not just to confirm that a supernova event occurred, but even to provide an estimate of the likely mass of the progenitor star. In this case, the measurement suggests the star that exploded and went supernova 2.5 million years ago would have been somewhere between 11 and 25 times the mass of our Sun. Over the years, scientists have found other spikes suggesting other supernova events nearby. In fact, our solar system right now is going through a local bubble thought to have been caused by a series of supernova events. This discovery is one of them, but it's the only one dated to exactly that time frame. While a very nearby supernova could inflict massive harm for life on Earth, this one thankfully was far enough away to only cause an increase in cosmic rays over several thousand years. 
but ancient ancestors of modern Homo sapiens would have noticed the sudden brightness in the sky, visible both at night time and even in the day. But the event would not have left the Earth totally unscathed. The study's co-author, Thomas Festerman, says the increased cosmic ray levels could have increased cloud formation. Increased cloud would have reduced the amount of heat reaching the Earth from the Sun. And with less solar radiation reaching the surface, the planet would have cooled. And in fact, that means this supernova could be linked to the Pleistocene Epoch, the period of the Ice Ages, which coincidentally just happened to begin at around the same time. This is space time. Still to come, a successful 13th test flight for New Shepard and a new top-secret satellite ground station begins operations in Western Australia. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Blue Origin has successfully completed its 13th and latest test flight of its new Shepard spacecraft, which will eventually be carrying terrorists to the edge of space. The NS-13 mission flew 12 commercial payloads into space during the test flight. Included was a deorbit descent and landing sensor for NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate, which was mounted on the exterior of the new Shepard booster rather than inside the capsule. It's the first time New Shepard's carried a payload on the exterior of the rocket. Other payloads included two experiments for the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas, as well as one from NASA's Armstrong Flight Research Center in California, another from Colorado-based Space Lab Technologies, experiments for Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland, and a plant biology experiment for the University of Florida. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, manage to start, 2, one. All right, look at her go. Mission Control has confirmed New Shepard has cleared the tower on her way to space. Lunar landing tech on board, payloads inside. New Shepard's gaining speed. That BE-3 engine is really doing its work. What a clean burn. First milestone here is max Q. That's when the aerodynamic stresses are at their maximum on the vehicle. Next up, we're looking for Miko or main engine cutoff just before separation coming up on a thousand miles per hour. It's a quick trip to space for New Shepard. All right, coming up on separation after Miko here. There we go, looks like BE3 engine is shut off. Speed's decreasing now. All right, I think I see separation there. Right about now, those experiments are getting their clean micro Gs, three to four minutes of hang time, gathering some great data. And at this point, if you were flying with us, you'd be able to get out of your seat, float around the capsule, do a somersault, high-five your friend, and look down at that beautiful Earth below you. A booster is starting its descent back to Earth, almost at apogee for the capsule. All right, apogee. As long as that's over at Carmen Line, if you are an astronaut on board, you are now or you are now officially an astronaut, my friend. All right, now the booster's coming back down. Those sensors are really going to work as the booster makes its way back to the pad for that precise landing here in West Texas. The rocket's soon reaching the atmospheric pierce point. This is when the rocket's returning from space and entering the atmosphere. And those control surfaces on the fins are starting to have air pressure against them for the first time on its descent. And the rocket will come back and land on the pad just two miles north from where it took off. Booster's gaining a lot of speed. 
control surfaces, really doing their job keeping that vehicle stable. And that booster, you know, of course, is more aerodynamically shaped than the crew capsule, which is why it will win the race back to the ground and land a few minutes before the capsule, which is great for the astronauts. They get a little more hang time up there. Those wedge fins keeping the rocket stable. The LIDAR sensors are right in, below those fins on the fin box. Soon here, we'll see the air brakes deploy. This will slow the vehicle down significantly as it makes its way down. There we go. Speed is slowing down rapidly here as it gets closer to the pad. You were down in Texas, you'd hear a sonic boom any second, almost knocks you off your feet. It's so exciting. All right, there go the drag brakes. Here we go, we're getting close. Now we're just waiting for that BE3 engine to relight. So stable. Touch. Oh my God. Down. New Shepard. Here incredible. we go. That oh, never man. gets old to watch that rocket. It almost looks no. fake every single time. It's, I'm like, Joel, that's not CGI, it is, is not it? It's fake. It's, uh, it amazes <gasps> me every single time I watch a booster uh, I mean, falling out of, the, out of the sky and descending like that with such controlled precision. It's, it's inspiring to watch. All right. Well, I hope those sensors got some good data today. And our recovery crews are going to be out there soon to, to safe the vehicle. Seventh landing for this booster. What an awesome record. Every launch, I think I speak for our whole team here at Blue Origin, that you feel like you're a little part of history. Here we go. Here's the capsule. Looks like the mains have deployed. They're unfurling. The speed on the capsule has decreased significantly with those mains out. 16 miles per hour. Now, this part of your flight, if you're an astronaut, you'll notice that once those mains are out and you're just in a free fall, it's just almost silent. And it's this reflective, beautiful moment. And right before the capsule lands here, a retro thrust system will fire, creating a pillow of air. The capsule lands at about one to two miles per hour, kicks up a little bit of dust. Wow. The speed stabilizes about 16 miles per hour That's and then right. will be at about one to two. Here we go, almost touchdown. All right, there and touchdown of the capsule. Oh. All right. She made it back. Excellent. Woo! Wow, we got both our craft back safely from space. Looks those. to have been just a fully nominal flight here, Joel. That's right. You see those parachutes gently falling to the ground. Hopefully we got some great data from our lunar sensor demo here on, on our booster, seventh flight for that vehicle. Hopefully all of our customers with their payloads inside the capsule are going to get some great data as well. I'm sure our recovery teams are on their way out. All right, and here's our unofficial stats from the flight today. Crew capsule's apogee, awesome altitude, 351,200 feet. Max ascent velocity under that BE3 engine, 2,232 miles per hour. Wow. Mission start time, 8.36, right on the nose. Great job, Team Blue. And mission time, 10 minutes and 15 seconds. The mission had been delayed by several weeks because of problems with the power supply for one of the NASA experimental payloads. Eventually, Blue Origin wants to fly tourists on ballistic trajectories to the edge of space in direct competition with Virgin Galactic. But while the Richard Branson-backed Virgin uses a winged rocket-powered space plane launched at altitude from under a jet-powered mothership, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin launches vertically with a capsule mounted on top of the new Shepard booster rocket. Blue Origin's capsules will seat six passengers next to huge panoramic windows. Neither Virgin nor Blue Origin have yet announced the date for the start of passenger flights, which have been expected for years. Nor are they telling us the exact cost of tickets. 
but expect prices north of a quarter of a million dollars US per seat. This is Space Time. Still to come, a new top-secret satellite ground station begins operations in Western Australia, and later in the Science Report, a new study links smartphone abuse to suicidal behaviour in teenagers. All that and more still to come on Space Time. This episode of Space Time is brought to you by LastPass, simplifying your online life. Now, if you're anything like me, one of the biggest frustrations and time-consuming parts of going online anywhere is trying to remember and then use all those login details and passwords that you've built up over the years. And again, like me, you probably already have hundreds of them. Of course, on the other hand, you could just be like a lot of other people out there and simply use one password for everything. And that's not a particularly secure idea. But I guess it could be worse. You could be one of those people that use 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 or A, B, C, D, E. Or worst of all, you could use password as your password. And with the internet getting more and more dangerous, now really is the time to do something about that. And the good news is there's a great solution out there. It's called LastPass Password Manager. And with it, suddenly all those security hassles are gone. And believe me, the relief really is unbelievable. Not to mention the time it saves you. And it's so convenient having everything stored in the one manageable dashboard. If you sign up for LastPass, you'll be joining some 25.6 million fellow users around the world and more than 70,000 businesses. Now you've got to admit, that's a lot of trust with one of the most important aspects of online life. And the good news is, all this peace of mind is really affordable. If you want, you can simply sign up for the free service and leave it at that. Or for even more features, get the premium package, which is $4.50 a month. There are family and enterprise plans available as well. Plus, LastPass works across all devices and even suggests super secure passwords for you to use. So why not put your passwords into autopilot and reduce the stress? You can check out LastPass at spacetimewithstuartgary.com forward slash LastPass. That way you'll be helping to support our show. So sign up and use it for free at spacetimewithstuartgary.com forward slash LastPass and simplify your life. And like always, you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. That's spacetimewithstuartgary.com forward slash LastPass. And now it's back to the show. This is Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new highly classified satellite ground station for the wideband global satellite communication system has now become operational near Geraldton in Western Australia. The new facility, known as Satellite Ground Station West, is located in the existing Cogerina Satellite Ground Station complex, 30 kilometres east of Geraldton. It'll provide Australian, American and Canadian military with greater access to the wideband global satellite communication system an ultra-high-capacity defence satellite communications network. It's designed to provide real-time audio, video and data communication services linking military command and control centres with air, sea and land forces anywhere in the world. The constellation currently includes 10 satellites, with operations running out of the 4th Space Operations Squadron at Schriever Air Force Base and the 53rd Signal Battalion out of Fort Carson, both in Colorado. 
It's understood that a single wide-band global satellite communication system spacecraft has as much bandwidth as the entire existing U.S. defense satellite communication system. Satellite Ground Station West will link with satellites positioned over the Indian Ocean. Meanwhile, work on a mirror facility, Satellite Ground Station East, is currently underway in the New South Wales Riverina. Operated by the Australian Defence Force, the Codgerina Satellite Ground Station is a major Australian Defence Signals Interception Facility and includes dishes associated with the Echelon Signals Intelligence System, which monitors global communications networks. Satellite dishes associated with several other military communications networks, including the Mobile User Objective System, the Next Generation Satellite Communication System, and the Ultra High Frequency Satellite Communications Project, are also located at the complex. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A study looking at the results of 66 individual studies designed to identify risk factors for suicidal behaviour in teenagers has found that smartphone abuse is one of the most likely causes. The research, published in the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Nursing, also found irregular sleep patterns, poor nutrition, menstrual problems, poor coping mechanisms, and an unhealthy lifestyle are all internal factors that can increase the risk of suicidal behaviour. External factors that can increase the risk include having parents with a history of mental health issues, poor family interactions, and social problems. Factors that may reduce the risk of suicidal behaviour in teenagers include feeling life is meaningful, having adequate nutrition, having positive child-parent interactions, keeping occupied by reading lots of books and watching movies, and importantly, having something to believe in. One of the last bastions for a species of endangered sawfish that's already disappeared from more than 60% of its former habitat is now being monitored to try and ensure its survival. Scientists from Murdoch University say changing water levels in Western Australia's Fitzroy River is impacting on freshwater sawfish growth and survival rates. The study, reported in the journal Science of the Total Environment, found freshwater sawfish can lose around 10% of their body mass each year during the long dry season. That implies they're not able to catch enough prey to satisfy their energy requirements. The study found sawfish were considerably healthier in years with greater wet season river flows allowing them to build a greater resilience to the long dry seasons that follow. Sawfish are listed as critically endangered by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Scientists have developed a new solar panel design which could lead to wider use of renewable energy. Researchers say designing solar panels in a checkerboard pattern increases their ability to absorb light by 125%. The breakthrough could lead to the production of thinner, lighter, more flexible solar panels that could be used to power more homes and be used in a wide range of products. The study, led by scientists from the University of York and the University of Lisbon, looked at how different surface designs impacted on the absorption of sunlight in solar cells, which when put together form solar panels. The researchers found that the checkerboard design improved diffraction, which enhanced the probability of light being absorbed, which can then be used to make electricity. In fact, it rivals the absorption enhancements of more sophisticated designs, while also absorbing more light deeper in the plane and less light near the surface structure itself. 
Psychologists from the universities of Sussex and Portsmouth have, dare I say, perfected the art of building a bond with cats. The findings, published in the journal Scientific Reports, suggest the best way to build a rapport with a cat is by using the eye-narrowing technique. This eye-narrowing action by humans generates something they're calling the cat smile, the so-called slow blink that cats sometimes do. And it seems to make the humans more attractive and trusting for the cat. Mind you, eye-narrowing movements in cats do have some parallels with the genuine smile in humans. Scientists found that cats are more likely to slow blink at their human counterparts after their human counterparts, I won't call them owners, have slow blinked at them. They also found that cats were more likely to approach your outstretched hand after you first slow blinked at the cat. Now, as any cat owner will tell you, kitty cats have very different but equal relationships with their human companions compared to dogs. Just like dogs, cats will let you know when they're hungry, when they're happy, and when they're scared. And just like dogs, cats can also recognize their own name from other words, even when an unfamiliar human's calling them. And they have quite a human vocabulary, able to discriminate a range of human words, such as commonly used terms for food, grooming, or dare I say, bath time. And kitty cats can also be very sensitive to human emotional cues. They'll rub or butt their heads against their human companions when their human feels sad. Scientists say the new findings could potentially be used to assess the welfare of cats in a variety of settings, including veterinary practices and animal shelters. And time now for what can only be the silliest story of the week. And like everything in Australia's Northern Territory, things just seem to be better when you can work a crocodile into the story. And it seems that even extends to local politics, where local crocodilian star Bert, he's a 5.1 metre 16 foot long estuarine saltwater crocodile, has been used to help predict the winner of local territory elections. Bert is quite famous. He starred alongside Paul Hogan and Linda Kozlowski in the original Crocodile Dundee movie as well as providing the basis for the digital crocodile in the film Rogue. But as Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics explains, his political knowledge still leaves something to be desired. But uh, basically it uh, is in a, a zoo or aquarium sort of thing in the middle of the capital of uh, Northern Territory, Darwin. And what they do is that uh, for this election, they string, put a string across, hang some photos of the leaders of the parties and then hang a bit of chicken underneath them to see which one the crocodile chooses. Now, poor Crocs leaping out of the water, trying to get up so many feet out of the water and uh, just grabs one. And of course, that's naturally the, the crocodile choosing which one. In this particular case, for your overseas listeners and even for those who don't know Northern Territory, well, the party in power was the Labour Party. The main party competing against them was the Country Liberal Party. They were decimated in the previous election. They're only down to a couple of sitting members. And there's a third party, which was like basically an independent or disgruntled former Country, country Liberal Party members, yeah. Yeah. So these three leaders, large Photos with chicken bits hanging underneath them were strung across the top of the crocodile uh, enclosure and this crocodile leaping up and down and trying to choose one and they finally chose the country Liberal Party leader. Everyone cheered, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, then the election was held shortly after and the country Liberal Party lost. Yeah, um, so, You've got to admit they did gain a lot. I mean, they had one sitting member or something prior to <laughs> 
And now, following this election, they're now a threat. I mean, the next election, they could win. Well, don't forget that they held the, the um, government's position not that long ago as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, but then so, they started getting rid of all their leaders, didn't they? That's, that's why. Yeah, yeah that's party. right. Anyway, we won't yeah. go into the politics of it all. Except that Bert's reputation is not that good because he also predicted the winner of the uh, last federal election and lost that one too. Well, that then puts him in the same category as the journalist at Channel 10 and, of course, our esteemed political commentators with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. They got it and a lot of uh, And a lot of print media as well. The, um, Indeed. The, the accepted wisdom was that uh, Bill Shorten, who was leader of the Labor Party, would win it uh, hands down, and he lost it. They even surprised the leader of the sort of uh, government who did win, and he called it a miracle. <laughs> but poor old Bert. There used to be an octopus who used to do that. Yeah, the octopus, I think, was in Germany or someplace like that. That's it was who would pick... Pick the winner of the uh, the World Cup, the soccer World Cup. Didn't do that well either, but I mean, probably be just as good to get a, a human psychic. They'd be just as accurate, actually probably less. We're doing a survey of psychics and the accuracy is pretty low. The interim result is that about 10% of predictions come true. See, that's worse um, than that's worse than what you'd get in a coin flip. That's right. And if, if my car mechanic was did it right 10% of the time, or my neurosurgeon did it right 10% of the time, I think I'd be looking elsewhere. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast download provider and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 